Good morning. I hope you all had a good week. I know I did. And um, just interesting, again, what Bill is talking about, how he finished the series uh, last week and the story that he told about the student who really felt that he, uh, God was calling him to be a part of a ministry, yet he thought, I'm a student, what I have to get, it's not enough, but yet he challenged himself, saying, okay, what is too small that would be just absolutely ridiculous for me not to do? And he was obedient with little that he had, and this whole week, that story and that challenge that Bill gave us at the wrap-up of last week has just continued to come through and remind me, and I know it's, we get to those moments of thinking, I just, I'm so inadequate, I don't have enough, or... I, I can't, you know, or I, I just don't have it, and or what I have is too little. And, um, you know, just reminded again, you know, God has given each one of us unique gifts and abilities, and in that moment when we're feeling inadequate or, oh, it won't make a difference, or the question that is important for us to ask and to answer is, am I willing? Are you willing? You know, what's God, what, what is God calling you to? What's God working on your heart? Where um, are you willing to be used? Whatever it may be, whether it's small, whether it's big, whatever. And um, when I think about an example in my life of somebody who has given everything that, they, that she has and is willing to give and give, even when it seems like there's maybe not there, there's nothing more to give, um, is Elaine. And I just have been so blessed this past year of... Um, learning about her through our emails, and then when we actually went over there and seeing firsthand just the impact. You know, she uh, gave her fish and her loaves, saying, Lord, this is all I have. I'm feeling you call me to do this. And to see how God has multiplied what she has given. And uh, for the children who would have no hope for a future in this world, and not just this world, but she is pouring into them and discipling them. So they now have a hope for a future and eternity. They have a, a personal relationship with God. And um, so would you welcome with me um, Elaine as she comes to share with us this morning. Can I use one of these stands? Yeah. I want to knock everybody's things over. Dismiss the blast kids. Just say that. The blast kids. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I now know why the worship time was lively. We've got, I guess, a bunch of people having a blast in here. So the blast kids are supposed to be dismissed at this time. <laughs> See you later, guys. <laughs> I have to get situated here before I start doing the juggling act. That will be very pretty. I don't know what this is going to do. I so appreciate the welcome um, that I have received. It's awesome when you are moving around and you see uh, different people, different areas, but all in the same body. And um, it's, it's just awesome. And Pastor Bill, I have to tell you, your people know how to do hospitality. I have been blessed. I am blessed. And um, it's exciting for me to be here. I heard as much about you as maybe you did about me. Well, now the two of us get to meet, so we can really scrutinize each other. But uh, uh, I, just, I just appreciate the opportunity. Our kids in Kenya are constantly learning, taken out of a situation 
that uh, possibly would be devastating for them with nowhere to go, no hope, uh, separated from their families because of maybe abuse, rejection, um, poverty, you name it, there could be any reason why they're on the street. But um, being able to welcome them in and offer them what I can, which is the Lord Jesus Christ, is one of the greatest challenges I think that I have ever faced or will ever face. I don't know if there will ever be more of a challenge for me or not, but uh, that is the challenge for me now. But I so desire to give them uh, what I have, but even more. Um, I feel privileged to uh, be doing what I'm doing, although it was never a target in my mind, never a thought in my mind, and uh, maybe keeping me dumb was what caused me to just fall into it. I don't know. You know, when you're not so dumb, you start to ask a lot of questions. I didn't even know what questions to ask. So um, anyway, ended up in Kenya. But I want to talk to you this morning about the scripture in Matthew 25, and it's a very familiar passage. You will know it. Uh, about the least of these. It's in Matthew 25, and I want to read a few, portion, a few of those verses um, before we get into it and we talk about what is actually happening there. <clears throat> Starting with verse, uh, 20, chapter 25, verse 31, it says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on the right, Come, you who are blessed by the Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick? or in prison and go to visit you? And the king will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. And they will all answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or stranger or needing clothes or sick and in prison and did not help you? And he will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Let us pray. Father, I thank you. <clears throat> for the awesome privilege of standing before you first, but standing in the presence of these brothers and sisters here. Lord, I pray that you would open the eyes of our heart today, that there may be receptivity. It is your word, Lord, and we want to hear your word. So, Father, I ask that you would just begin to move by your spirit in the hearts and lives of these that are here. 
We ask, Lord, that your spirit would do amazing things beginning now. And God, I pray for those who may be thrust into a place where they are on a journey that they have no clue where they're going. (laughs) They can join the club. And so, God, I ask that you would just take each one by the heart and by the hand, lead them, and bless your word as it comes forth. In Jesus' name, amen. When we talk about ministry to the least of these, who are the least? What does that mean? And who are the ones? We're talking about people, here it's obvious, but who are the least of these? Um, We have a scripture on some of our brochures talking about the least of these, so I've basically designated the street children, the least of these. But um, let us look at it a little bit closer. The dictionary gives a definition one being the lowest in importance or position. And that's certainly what the street children end up being. And then it can de- uh, connote the smallest in size or degree. And some of the street kids are very small. Our youngest one that wasn't a street kid, but he was found on the street, was two years old. And then an abandoned baby, three months old. So they can be very small in size. And then another definition is being a member of kind distinguished by diminutive size. That could be poor people, just a small community, could be a TB sanitarium, a group of people, a small minority maybe. But there's different things that we look at when, and think when we think of the least. We think of maybe less than. Um, we can look at all kinds of things. And when we define who the least of these are, then what do we do with that? And so when we hear what this is here, it sounds like a very simple thing to do. Feed somebody, clothe somebody, find shelter for them, visit them when they're sick, go visit them when they're lonely and they're in prison. That sounds like an easy thing, but it's ministering to the least of these. And I think that there are people who do that naturally. My daughter-in-law is one of them. She doesn't meet a stranger on the street And my son, bless his heart, he's not outgoing like she is, but he's, Cindy, do you have to give your life story to everybody? Can't you just say, good morning, how are you? But she is one of those. Within two minutes, she can find out what's going on in that person's life, and then she'll stand there and pray for him. She's ministering to the least of it. She didn't know they were the least, but she found the need and then began to minister to it. We see things in that light, but God sees things differently. He speaks much about humility and the place that we have to find ourselves. If we want to be great, we have to be servant. And so we need to put ourselves in that thing. But God also makes the poor his priority. When the hungry pray, he listens. When the orphans cry, he sees. And so he's watchful of those kinds of things. Jesus' first message when he returned to Nazareth declared his passion for the poor. The villagers were simple people. Some were stonecutters, carpenters, uh, farmers, and craftsmen. Very poor people. They survived on minimum wages. And they lived under Roman oppression. But Jesus had returned home after being tempted in the desert. The villagers asked him to read scripture. And he was handed the book of uh, the prophet Isaiah. And he read Isaiah 61. Starting in verse 1, he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me, or he has sent me, to heal the brokenhearted, 
to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of our Lord. If those are not the least of these, I don't know what they are. But that is what was on God's heart. He sought out the disenfranchised. He sought, sought out the marginal members of society. He's describing the children on the streets of Africa. Not only Kenya, it's widespread, the whole continent. The disciples, if you remember when Jesus was uh, talking with the children and the disciples rebuked him, get away, and tried to push them away. And Jesus said, let the children alone and let them come to me. That was his heart. Because they were there, they couldn't fend for themselves. And so he welcomed them, he brought them in. And then Isaiah chapter 58, verses 6 to 7. Where do we find the least of these? Let me read this portion of scripture to you. From chapter 58. Uh, just verses 6 and 7. It says, Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke? To set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is not, it is not, is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? when you see the naked, to clothe him and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. This is what Jesus saw. Now, where do we find the least of these? I dare say they are in this community. Doesn't look like it looks nothing like Africa. Africa, you go and you see, you look in the street and where you live, you see poverty, you see depravity, you see all kinds of things and you think, Wow, what a mission field. But what about the mission field right here in your community? You have people around you who are hurting. And if we are not looking, we will miss them. It's too easy for us, particularly in this society, and I see it when I come back. Culture shock is not going to Kenya for me. Culture shock is coming into America because it is so drastically different. People are so busy. They're so caught up in technology. Sorry, I hate technology. But it's there. But they use it, and it is a gift. Uh, don't get me wrong. But when, people are, when we're caught up doing those things, and our focus is in other places, we are op often going to miss the least of these. Not because of their size, but because our focus is somewhere else. And when uh, we look at that and see what God is actually saying, then where are we going to find these people that he is mentioning, so that we can, can be, min, be ministry. They're on the streets in Kenya, as I said. They're in the slums. And we only have to look. But often we're busy and we just are casual observers. We may notice a kid on the street, or you may see somebody in a neighborhood that is poorly dressed. Maybe their clothes are tattered, dirty, not uh, adequately equipped for this weather. And what do we do? We may think in our heart that kid or that child should be inside out of the cold or he should have brought a jacket when he goes on. When I was in Virginia just last week and my grandchildren, they're in shirt sleeves and barefooted and they're freezing me to death, but they're comfortable. And I had to say, please put your coat on, I'm cold. They didn't get that, but just looking at them made me cold. 
And so when we look at them and we really begin to assess the situation, that's when we get ready to take action. And when we don't see them, we go by. And you know, the unfortunate thing is, we really don't see the least of these in our churches. Now, I'm going to pigeonhole just a little bit because, as we've already looked at, there are many reasons we could call or put a person and call them the least of these. But for right now, I'm going to pigeonhole to the children. I was a children's pastor in California and uh, had served. I've worked children's ministry since I was 14 years old. That has just been my life. And it's always been those that are on the fringe, the ones that nobody else wants to deal with, the underdog, if you would. And so there's just a penchant there. Part of it is because of some things I went through as a child, but a penchant for being able to seek out those that everybody else has just left. And that child is so beat down that they're not going to assert themselves and ask or even let you know that they need help. So the one that grabbed my attention is the one sitting back in the corner and saying nothing while the other ones are swinging from the chandeliers. Those I don't worry about. But the little ones that are there and are not saying anything, and yet you know they're shriveled up inside, there's something going on that you have not seen. And so when I begin to look at that, and I began ministering in the place where I was, I started ministering to gang families. This was after I... Um, After I resigned a position because they didn't want the least of these in the church, I tried to keep it going outside the church on one day a week, and I had no help. But I also was attached to the church. I was brought there for a position. I was, that was my job, if I can put it that way. And so I had to do this, and I couldn't do both. And I struggled for a year. God, I know that I'm not doing what my heart is calling me to do, what I feel you want me to do. And yet, I couldn't create a division. But as I stayed there, I saw that my vision and the pastor's vision were separating. And I thought, I can't do this, God. I can't do this. It's going to create division in the body. But what do I do? Where do I go? And so as I began thinking of it, I didn't feel conscientiously that I could send out resumes or look for a position and keep it hidden. That's the reason it took me a year to make that decision, was because I knew when I gave that resignation, I had absolutely nothing. I was cutting all ties, but that's what I felt I had to do. And I thought, God, what have I got to lose? Everything I have belongs to you anyway. So... I took the plunge, and I gave the resignation. And I said, God, now what do I do? Through that, I had no income. I lost my home. Ended up moving me in with strangers, total strangers, and lived with them for six years. But that was God's provision. That was God's preparation. And let me tell you, whatever you're going through right now, you are in preparation for what God has for you and for where he's going to take you. It may not feel good. It may not look good, but trust me. He brings us sometimes, takes us, and gives us a test so that we can come through with a testimony. And sometimes we find ourselves in a mess, but we come through it so we have a message. It's intended for our experiences to be able to be shared and to, uh, for God to be able to use those things 
to touch other members in the body of Christ. But after I went to, uh, I gave up and was working with the gang families on the street, those children were on the street because their fathers, some of them were in prison for having shot a, a, a rival gang member, or they had been shot. The mothers were turning to drugs and prostitution as a means of coping. So the children were on the street, vandalism and all of this kind of stuff. They had a place to go home and sleep at night, but there was nobody there emotionally, mentally. And so when I was doing that and wondering, now what happens to these kids? I was invited to start going um, with World Vision on some teams in uh, different parts of Africa to do prayer mapping and walking through those countries that were war-torn and civil strife. And so as I'd done that, I kept seeing in Africa thousands and thousands and thousands of children on the street. And I kept thinking, where are these from? Some of them were from war. Their parents had been killed. Some of them were uh, parents had died from HIV AIDS. And so these children were there, but they were not in school. And it began to just break my heart everywhere we went. In a two-year period, we were in and out of 17 different countries, and they were all the same everywhere we went. And I said, God, what can be done about these children? And I would have to go and come back to America, to plenty, the land of plenty, and from what I had just left. And then in another six weeks, we were gone again in the same site in whichever country we were. And so realizing that in America, I was not able to do what I felt like God had put in my heart to do, and that was to take care of these children on the street, the gang families, to minister to them and to bring them in the church. I thought it would be an easy thing to bring them in church so that the church could help minister to them. But the church didn't want them. They were undisciplined. They were smelly. They didn't have the right kind of clothes. And so they were pushed aside. And when I got with them on the street and began to visit in their homes, I would go in the homes, I would spend the time with them, trying to find out what was going on in the family. And as I began to look at them, what happened was when I got down on my knees and I looked in their eyes, that's when I could see who that child really was. Too many times we walked down the street and here comes a scruffy youngster, maybe hungry, not properly clad, needing something desperately, and it's too easy just to turn our head and look at the sights and walk away. And Africa changed that for me, because when I was on the streets of Africa, in whatever country it was, I began to look into a child's eyes. And when you look deeply into the eyes of a person who is in pain, you feel that pain. And that's what I began to see. And so it began to even just rip my heart apart. So that when I came home, it's like, I no longer belong in America. And yet this is where I was born. This is where my family lived. So how can I just walk away? On one of these trips with World Vision, we were ministering in the Congo, and there were four pastors at that time asking if I could please come back and train their workers to help reach out to the children on the street. They were afraid of the numbers. What do we do if we have thousands and we have no food? And so I just, you know, I guess what any good Christian might do, yeah, God opens the door, I'll come back. 
And I turned my back and I thought, I'll never see them again. But God had a different plan. And so I began to start ministering to the children. After I'd resigned the church, I was on the street. I was right there. Was This is another thing, too. Sometimes we, um, you know, people will say things to us, and we hear it one way, and it was actually totally different. God spoke to me. It was the last service that I was in the church after I resigned, and as we were gathered for the closing prayer, the pastor said, Pastor Elaine, in 30 days you're going to be exactly where God wants you to be. You know what I heard from that? I'm out of here. I went home and I packed. My living room was full of boxes and ready to go. In 30 days, all I had to do was get a van and get going. And so I was there. Faith was high. God had spoke. I was going. And so 30 days, I'm there, and I'm ministering, and I started walking the streets of the city and praying for the kids. And I realized, I didn't even know this. The city that I had lived in already for three years, the population at that time was 19,000, and over half of that population were children under 15. And as I walked by the schools, I saw hundreds of kids. Where are these kids? Where are they? We had one of the more progressive churches. There was about 500 kids in our ministry. But you're talking 15,000 kids in that city. Where were they? They weren't in our church, and there was only a couple of other large churches. They weren't there. There was possibly maybe a total of 2,000 kids in that city that were being reached. And so that caught me. But as I began to walk, and I began to pray over that and to see what God was saying, I said, God, something has to be done. And I didn't have anything else to do, so I said, okay, show me. Well, I did release time education. Some of you uh, that are over 50, maybe 60 years old, may know about this, but there used to be a program whereby you could teach children religion in school. It started, I mean, actually, school started in churches anyway. My mother used to teach it. When I was growing up in school, we could be released for an hour a week to hear the gospel. And so that began to, to ring in my heart. And I went to the principals of the school and I asked them, how come nobody is doing release time education? And I was shocked when she said, because the church has to initiate it. And I thought, that's like saying, sick them to a bulldog, let's go. So I made the preparation and I did that. I opened it, we started, we were, I was going to a different school every day of the week, taking the children, you have to take them off of campus, cross the street or a nearby, nearby church, and reaching them with the gospel. And I thought, okay, this is the rest of my life. I can do this. The only problem is, after a year and a half, I couldn't get any more workers. The workers that I had decided, I don't have time for this anymore. I've got other things to do. And so here I am. What do I do? And during that time, when I was trying to make some decisions about this, I was with an, on another trip with World Vision. And when I came back, I said, God, I don't have anything to do when I get back now. I don't have any workers. We have to just let the program go. And we did. But it still was a cry in my heart for something. And after seeing the children in Kenya and in uh, different uh, countries in Africa, and came back and deciding, what can I do? I had approximately 100 kids that I was working with, kids from gang family and uh, high, at high risk, that I was ministering to in there in that city. 
And after seeing the kids in Africa, I wondered, what can I do? What should I do? And so as we went one year, and that year that I had been talked to with the four pastors, and I said, I'll come back if God opens the door, we were preparing to go again one more time, and this time was in November and December, just like time frame like now. That's not the best time of the year to try to raise funds, but I was gone in November, a good part of November, and then towards the middle of December in Africa somewhere. So I just glibly said, God, if you want me to go to Africa and to work with these people, I'm asking you to provide for me what I need to live for an entire year so that I can go and I can do the training in these different countries and then I can come back and you can tell me what to do. So, and I left it. And I was gone for that four or five week period in there in November and December. When I came back, there was enough for me to live on for an entire year plus what I needed for ministry. It's like, God, I told you, so I'm ready. And so, as I left the country, I was meeting with the women's prayer group, and I told them, I said, you know what, my heart is here. I want to be here, but I don't know if this is me, or I don't know if it is God, and I don't want to make that mistake. So I said, would you please help me pray? I need to be able to make that decision. So on my way home, I was, we were about an hour outside of Denver, where I was uh, going to be landing, and I woke up. And the first thing in my mind was, you have trained pastors to work with these kids on the street. You have trained workers. You have worked with kids on the street. You've started some vacation Bible schools. And, but you haven't done anything to permanently take these children off of the street. You need to go back and start a home. That was as clear to me as if the Lord was standing right here and we were dialoguing. So when I got off the plane, my son was there to meet me. How are things going? I said, they're great. I said, I'm going back permanently. And I didn't know what reaction I would get. But they said, wow, mom, go for it. We've never seen you happier than when you come back from Africa. So I stayed home five months that year, gave away everything that I owned except for what I could put in three foot lockers, and I went back to Kenya. The last trip I made with World Vision, they were, there were 13 team members, and I think four of us were from America. And when we went, we ministered in that country. The rest of the team came home, and I stayed. That was, I, I don't know if I could really call it the best year of my life, but it was awesome. Because I was training the workers how to reach out to the street kids. They were afraid because of the numbers. There's lots of them. So uh, what do we feed them? How do we deal with it? Where do we get a building to have all of these meetings in? And so I told him, I said, and when I think about it now, it sounds pretty naive, but I said, you know what? If God brings a bunch of kids to you, then he's going to bring the provision for it too. But that's what I had seen God do for me, so why wouldn't he do it for someone else? And so they took me at my word. And one pastor in the Congo started with 25 kids on his veranda. He wanted to put them inside, bring them inside out of the weather, but they were afraid that we would take them inside, lock the door, and then call the police on them. Those are the kind of things that were happening. So we led him on the veranda, and we started Kids Church. That was my mission, was to plant kids' churches. That's what I ended up doing with the, the gang kids in California. I used churches during the week that weren't having services there, and we were reaching the kids with the gospel. 
And so I thought, why wouldn't this work in Africa? And so we started planting kids' churches. Churches that were only ministering to the children who were on the street, had nobody else to care for them, nowhere else to go. And those people, those pastors, poverty-stricken countries, saw God do amazing things to supply for those kids. We had an agreement with them. By then, I had already, uh, Rock Ministries is already uh, a nonprofit in, in the U.S. And so I thought, okay, we will encourage you. We, be, we will support you financially, monthly, only for the purpose of feeding the children. Because these were pastors who had a church congregation. They had support. So the funds were to be used just to buy food to feed the children when they came from kids' church. Because quite likely, that is the only time during the week they had anything to eat. And so that was the agreement. We also had uh, some guidelines that we expected for them to have to make sure that things didn't run amok. And then we would keep in touch with them. $25 a month is what we started with. The second year, we increased it to $50 a month. And then at the end of that two years, we committed to helping them find their own resources so that when we take our hands away, you don't drop everything. Immediately, the man in Congo, he was rabid for the souls of children. He said, these kids need parents, they need a home, they need food, they need clothing. But more than that, they need the gospel because most of them will not live beyond the age of four. And that struck my heart. And so we continued and that man then, after we trained, we had 40-some-odd pastors that we trained at one time. And then we went, and we went on the street with them for six weeks to get things started. Because I found out from Africans that you can show them what to do, you can tell them what to do, and when they try to do it and they run into problems and they can't solve them, they just quit. So we worked with them for six weeks. So that we ran against those problems, we showed them how to solve the problems and how to deal with it. And that little man, this is going to be funny for some of you, and I'm not making fun of the man. He's the cutest little guy you ever saw. He's maybe a little bit shorter than I am. But uh, I called him my little monkey man. If you go, remember as a kid going to the fair and you got these two little sticks and the monkey on it and you squeeze the stick and he tumbles? That's the way he is. He's so animated when he sings when he's around those kids. And that's what he reminded me of. He's just got the surge of God's life in him, and he wants to put it into those kids. But after we trained him, and he was going all through the country as a superintendent of a denomination, he began to gather more pastors and train them, and he had some 50 locations meeting with 250 kids a week all over Congo. He came to visit me before I left for America that year in October. We talked about the work there and how he was doing, and the day that he left Nairobi to go back to Congo, the war broke out. He could not get back into his country. He was in uh, a refugee camp in Burundi, just across the border. And while there, he planted two more kids' churches with the hundreds of kids that were refugees. And he was there for another three years before he could get back into Congo. The government ended up giving him a building with over 500 orphans, children who were five and six years old, all of them orphaned by war. And he planted kids' churches in there. This is what God will do to someone who will submit and say, God, whatever you have, 
You help me do it, and I'll do it for the sake of the kingdom. When you look into the eyes of a child that is destitute, they want more than anything to be a part of what you have. They want to know who you are. They want to know that you care about them. Children do not care uh, how much you know until they know how much you care. And once they know you care, you have got them in the palm of your hand. And you can reach them with the gospel. And so looking at them and reaching out to them. And I get asked all the time, why do you even bother with these kinds of kids that are on the street? They're throwaway, and that's the way the cities treat them. When they're on the street, they're sleeping on the street. Um, and the weather like this, it's not this cold, obviously. Our low temperature um, in the cold part of the year is 60 degrees. But it's cold as in comparison to the hotter weather. But they are sleeping in uh, kind of like gunny bags. They sleep in those in the night, just curled up on the street somewhere. But in the middle of the night, the police will come. They start beating with their sticks, make them get up and go relocate someplace else because they don't want them littering the street. So that's the way they're treated. That's the way they think everybody is going to treat them. But when you begin to take them in and you begin to reach them with the gospel, they begin to feel the love of God. There is something there that draws them to you. I had no reason for those kids to come back and forth to kids' church that they did. We made it difficult. We were way on the other side of town. We offered them tea. We offered them porridge and mandazi, a little kind of a cake donut, and that's all. We wanted to make sure they weren't coming just for something to eat, but we also wanted to make sure they had something when they came. So when it became obvious to us that they were intentional for wanting to hear the gospel, that's what really pricked my heart. And touch me. So when I look at those kids and people say, why do you minister? I say, because that is a soul. That is a child that God can use. And when I look at that child, I have to pour everything that I have and who I am and what God has given me into that life because I don't know which child may be the next Billy Graham or the next Pastor Bill. I have no clue what God has in mind for them. But I have to give everything that I can and let God do what he can do for them. They're receptive and they're open, but they have been on the street and there are lifestyle habits that have to be broken and have to be changed. It's like an addiction living on the street. They learn to live a certain way and trying to change that is very difficult. Just like people who are caught up in alcohol and drugs, you don't just quit drinking and quit taking the drugs. Your life has been affected, and the people around you have been affected by it. And so as we look at the children then and look at this is something that is worth, worth everything that God poured onto the cross. That's the value of that child and multiplied by thousands. And so when I began to look at situations like that, it's like God I can never touch all of these kids. I can never. And it's difficult, but you have to focus on what God has put before you and do that. And trust him to do and to reach the others that you're not able to reach. And so when we look at those, when we pour everything into them, and we don't see immediate results, not necessarily. Those of you who work with children here, um, you can spend a lifetime working with children, and you may not get any thanks. 
I think maybe very few times I ever had a child come, thank you so much for that Sunday school lesson today. But just don't think about it. But over time, God will give you the opportunity to maybe just have a glimpse into, remember that little guy? Remember him when he was six years old and he was such a rascal? And now look at him. He's a pastor. I've had some of those opportunities when I was going away and I would come back into the, the city and some of those kids that had been in the kids' church now are in the church. Two years ago when I was here and I visited that church, the kids that were in the kids' church are now Sunday school teachers. Some are getting married to pastors. Some are in Bible college. And praise God, that is, that is what it's all about. But that's not why I do it. I do it because that's what God has called, and for right now, this is the vessel that he's using. I don't know how long that's going to be. I don't know what my next challenge is going to be. But I want to be able to meet the challenge. And I want more than anything to see the kids that we have in our home right now to be pastors and teachers, doctors. They have dreams just like everybody else. We started school for them because they've been living on the street for three, four, five years. How do they get back into the mainstream of school? They can't. And so my boys grew up with an ACE curriculum. I don't know how many of you may know about that. And so I knew the pitfalls. It, you know, if it's for the overachiever and for the less motivated without feeling like they're pushed down or they're behind the rest of the class because it's individualized instruction. So it came to me, God, this could be used in Kenya. And yet at the time I was dealing with it here in America, it was uh, a very legalistic system. You were not allowed to copy. You couldn't do anything. But it was on my heart. And I had prepared years before to start that program in a church in California. I did a, a feasibility study, spent a year doing a feasibility study. We're ready. I got everything ready to go. I was ready to go for training to Texas. And two weeks before, um, that time, the pastor came to me and said, we're not going to send you to Texas. We need a man for that position. So I thought, what was that all about? I've spent a year doing this, and now it's for somebody else to walk in and take it over? I was crushed. But I had to submit and say, okay, God, I don't know where you're going with this, but whatever it is, I'll do it. 28 years later, in Kenya, places that I had never heard about previously, is where now we're using that school system. That was another thing. God had already gone before me. I'm not telling you that I took that in Kenya and, yay, we did a big thing. God had already gone. He already prepared it. And so I was at a guest house staying and met a man there from South Africa. We were talking a little bit and shared with him, you know, what I was going to be doing and all of that. And I said, I'm going to America. I'm going to go to the headquarters and see if they'll let me bring that curriculum back to use it with the street kids. He said, you don't have to go to America for that. South Africa is the headquarters. It's already there. My two sons have graduated from the system. So he gave me all the contacts. And I was ready to go. And then I, uh, before I was able to get uh, uh, out of Kenya, I met or I saw in the paper the local newspaper, a full-page story about the former permanent secretary to the Minister of Education in Kenya, 
who had retired. And when she retired, she started an ACE school. And I'm thinking, God, look at what you've done. She knows the government system. She knows this system. She will be able to help us know how to dovetail it and get it in for the, so that these kids can do it. So I met with her, and she's, go for it. Just go for it. So it was made easy for me. All I had to do was go for the training as administrator and get it started. And God began to move. He began to put people in place. We began to bring the kids into our home. And they began to recognize their need for school. And there it is. But 28 years ago, God planted that in my heart. I can't tell you what I felt in my heart when I was not allowed to implement that that school in our church. I, I just felt like everything was lost. Now what do I do with what's in my heart? And there were different times that I thought, okay, if God's moving me in this direction, maybe this is where I can use that curriculum. But it wasn't until Kenya. And God is using it now. It is beginning to spread. And those kids are learning. Major thing? They have to learn to read and write and speak English before they can even enter the first grade because they have to read the curriculum for themselves. So we've got 9, 10, 11, 12, 13-year-old boys doing nursery class, learning to color, learning to cut and to paste and all of that, and loving it because they had never done anything like that before. And 18 months to two years, they're speaking and reading and writing English and ready to go. Our top student, who is 23 years old right now, is in the seventh grade. And I believe he's college material. It's not unusual for a child that old to be that far back in their education because many are hindered from going to school because of lack of school fees. And so they stay out for two or three or four years. So it's not, not unusual for someone to graduate from eighth grade when they're 21, 22 years old. But they have a hunger for education. And our boys and our girls are getting a premium education. And I know that God is going to be using it. The government is looking at it. The, the curriculum has been approved in Kenya now, and the government is looking at it because they have realized the deficiency in the government system. And when I have to look at our kids and I see things happening that possibly is stifling their growth, or possibly hindering them from being all that God intends them to be, I become a big bear looking after the cubs. I can't be any more uh, ferocious for the lives of those children and what happens to them than I did for my own two sons. Because I know that God is there, God is moving in their lives, he has great plans, and Satan is out to destroy them. And so I will guard them as much as I can, but I have to guard them without being possessive. Just like God gives us our children, he loans them to us. These are children that are loaned to me. So for a time, I want to pour everything that I can into their lives and trust God to do the rest with it. The challenge that I am putting to you today, and it may take some doing, I don't know the layout of the city here or anything like this, but I'm going to challenge you that when you walk down the street, or in the mall even, I dare say that there are people that are wandering around the mall just because they're cold, they have no place to go, they're not properly clad. But when you're walking, when you're meeting people, particularly children, 
And children, yeah, they're down here. It's easy to miss them. But if you will be intentional about looking into the eyes of a child or someone that seems a little bit shrunk back, I guarantee you, you cannot walk away without God touching your heart. And I challenge you not to walk away without looking into their eyes. It will revolutionize your life. It will revolutionize the way that you look at people, at children. And it may just tear your heart out. It may turn you upside down, and it may take you across the world. I don't know that. But I believe you will not be the same when that happens. And putting time and effort into the life of someone and bringing them out of a pit of despair is an awesome, awesome thing to think that God would use a word you said or a touch of the hand, whatever it is, to really revolutionize and change a person's life. If you will do that, you'll be on a journey that you couldn't even have possibly imagined. God has plans for your life. He has plans for every person's life that we can even con come in contact with. We just don't know what it is. But it's not up to us to figure that out. You know, I could figure out, try to figure out the rest of my life, what's going to be happening with it. I don't have a clue. You know, we're building a children's village. I can't wait to get it done because we can house these children, let them finish their education and begin to serve God. And so, um, but by being held back for, what, 2003, we bought the property. Here it is, 2013 now. And we have two out of 21 houses built. We need a third house before we can even take our existing families and move them up there. And I don't know when that's going to happen. I would like to think that it's going to happen, but for the last year and a half, we say, oh, in six months, in six months, in six months. And I finally told the kids, because it seems disappointing, I said, you know what, let's quit, let's quit putting a timeline on it. Just let God be God, and we'll be happy when we move in. So we quit putting timelines on it, and we're just watching it happen. And two houses, each house will, will house ten children and two house parents. We want to raise them as a family. They don't know what a family is. We are one of very few children's homes that has both genders and all ages. The youngest we've ever brought into the home was three months old. And we have both boys and girls because we want to raise them as a family. And we need family house parents to be able to model what a family is like. A large percentage of Kenyans are separated. The families are separated because of jobs. The wife works in one province. The husband works in another. Many times the husbands or the fathers are neglecting. Most of our staff even say, my father was never around. So a father does not know how to father a child. And so we are trying to do that so that they can become godly families. They will have godly marriages and know how to bring up a family. And so when we put that kind of effort into them, we can see a future for these kids. I believe that in another generation, Kenya will have a different face. It will be changed. You know, we're looking at elections coming up, and it does not look good. The last election was chaos, and yet the tribal clashes have continued, and it's likely that it may be the same thing again. But the generation that is coming up now that is being touched by God and touched by the Holy Spirit 
is the hope that we have for Kenya. And the children are beginning to understand that. They're beginning to understand that they're in Rock Ministries because that's where God meant them. They could be in any other organization. In fact, we have one boy that started in our home and he got antsy because he wanted to go to school, so he left. And he was going to school in a, with another organization during uh, the day, but he had to go back and sleep on the street at night. And he's still submerged in that lifestyle. And only this past year, he came through some circumstances. He'd been helped by another family, and that family now had pushed him out. You're going to be 18? We don't even need you anymore. So he came back. I've kept in touch with him all these years, and he came back and he said, Mom, I need a place to stay. I don't have any place to go now. And he turned 18, December 24th, and I said, you know what? You're 18. The children's department really doesn't want us to have you in here when you're 18 because you're a child no more. But how could I just throw him out? So we allowed him to come back in. He's in secondary school. He was driven, and I believe, and the kids are seeing this as well, God wanted him in Rock Ministries. So here he is. So now I can't just say, sorry, you're too old. He's one of my kids. If one of my sons were out doing things that they shouldn't and he comes back, what do I do? Sorry, I don't, I don't have anything to do with you anymore. No, he's still my son. And so these children, these kids, are my children. For those who have come in as babies, infants, have nowhere, no way to know how, where they came from or any kind of connection, we are the only home that they will ever know. I'm the only mom that they would ever have. They have nothing else. And so I have to care for them just like I do. But until God brings someone else in that can come in and begin to take over and watch those children and see that they get where God wants them to go, I'm there as long as God allows me. And I can't tell you of any greater privilege but to minister to the least of these. I must stop. I will stop. I have stopped. Thank you. I'm going to ask um, Miss Elaine to come up one more minute. I'm going to ask Team Kenya to come up as well with her if you're here and you're part of Team Kenya. Um, as they come up, I wanted to read, and I know we're along here, but praise God, there's enough time for what he wants done. Um, and we're just we're maybe dismissing really quickly. Elaine shared, and I wanted you to hear this verse in context. She shared, Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen, to loose the chains of injustice, untie the cords of the yoke to the oppress, uh, to set the oppressed free, and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe him? and not turn away from your own flesh and blood. She, she shared that with you. Did you hear that today? I, I wanted you to hear what was next. Verse 8 says this. Then your light will break forth like a dawn, and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you, and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call, and your God will answer. And then you will cry for help, and he will say, Here am I. There's something to that, that those verses are together. And so I thank you uh, for your faithful ministry.
And I thank you for coming and sharing with us the importance of looking each other in the eye and recognizing God's image in his children. And I thank each of you who went and didn't know where you were going and then somehow, by the grace of God, brought Elaine back to us. <laughs> we are blessed to have her with us. Um, I'm going to ask the leadership team of the church and anyone on the prayer team or anyone who's here that wants to pray to come forward. And as soon as we're done praying, we're going to dismiss. But if you would like to pray for Elaine and for the ministry that she has in, in um, Africa, I'm going to ask you to come and pray with us today. Elaine, would you step out of here? We're going to circle around you if we could. I want Team Kenya in here, please. You can, you can come up and pray. You can pray from where you're at, whatever you feel compelled to do. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you and, and praise you that uh, you are our God and, uh, and that you are a glor- glorious God. Again, we uh, just reflect on the magnitude of you uh, and, and sometimes the need that we see around the world in our neighborhood in our workplace, in our homes, it just seems to be overwhelming. Uh, but Father, it's overwhelming only if we seek to solve it ourselves. And we know that you have agreed uh, to be there for us to, to lean upon, to rely upon, and to be used as vessels of you uh, in your kingdom. Father, I thank you for the faithfulness of your children here. I pray that we would continue to be faithful. I know that we fall short many times in our steadfastness uh, in serving you, and and we ask your forgiveness for that. But Father, we thank you that you give us the opportunity. And and Lord, I just praise you that that taking advantage of that opportunity ends up being a blessing for us. And uh, we just pray, Lord, that uh, we're able to meet people where they are and serve faithfully. And we just pray for Elaine's ministry. Thank you for her word. And uh, we lift up the needs of those around us and pray for the strength and the resources to respond and to provide and not just uh, think about it. Thank you, Father, for your conviction. Thank you for your word that guides us and teaches us and grows us. We uh, just pray for the strength to continue on in your name. Amen.